Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 69. We read from the beginning of this psalm last week, and now we're going to continue on with a few more verses. It's our Old Testament reading before we turn to Acts 21. We'll read verses 13 to 18. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. Let's turn once again to consider the Apostle Paul in his time of distress, so much like, in some ways, that of his Savior Jesus. In Acts 21, uh, starting 21, verse 40. Mostly we'll be reading from chapter 22, though, up through chapter 22, verse 29. All right, so beginning at Acts 21, verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are uh, uh, this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? 
Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Amen. You may be seated. When we're reading any part of Bible history, and the book of Acts in particular, it's interesting and important to notice where the historian spends a lot of time and where he passes over maybe large periods of time very quickly. There's, there's only so much that Luke can say. There's so many things that happened in the early days of the church. So many things happened on Paul's missionary journeys and his visits to so many different cities and so many different places. So many things that we wish we knew. Stories we would love to hear given the opportunity. But there are so many of those things that Luke leaves out. Space is precious. And that means that what Luke does include, we need to pay attention to. It must be important. Because he did choose to include that when he chose to leave out so many other things. Now, given those limits of space, you might wonder then, why does Luke repeat the the pretty long account of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus three different times in the book of Acts? Chapter 9, he tells what happened originally. Um, And then here in chapter 22, he has Paul uh, tell the story to the crowd from the temple. And then again, in chapter 26, we're going to hear Paul tell the story again, that time to King Agrippa. Um, When there are so many things that Luke could have written about and didn't, why does he repeat this story three times? Well, if nothing else, that that repetition, uh, repetition is always important in the Bible. If you hear something um, said more than once, your ears should always perk up because it must be important. And so this repetition of the story shows just how important Paul's conversion is in the history of the book of Acts. 
um, in the history of the first generation church and, and the whole message of this book. Um, but we're also going to see here and in chapter 26 that there are unique things that we can learn from each retelling of the event because each account comes in a different context with a different audience in mind. So let's open up this chapter um, in three parts this morning, starting with verses 1 through 11, which we're going to call Paul's completion. Then verses 12 to 22, Paul's commission. And finally, 23 to 29, Paul's continuing mission. So Paul's completion, Paul's commission, and Paul's continuing mission. All right, so to understand what's different about this retelling of the Damascus Road compared to chapter 9, we first need to understand why he's telling it. Paul is giving a defense here to the crowd that's just assaulted him in the temple. This is a, a, a legal defense, in a sense. He's attempting, uh, at least, to address the accusation that they've just made against him in verse 28 of chapter 21, that uh, the accusation that he's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, that is the temple. And so Paul really has two objectives in this speech. Uh, he says, uh, um, where he says, brothers and fathers, hear this defense that I now make before you. Um, John Stott, I think, has broken this down very helpfully in his commentary. He, he divides these two objectives out. The, um, the first one um, is to show that Paul is, uh, and this, this is Stott's words, I'm going to go and quote him, that Paul is not only by birth and education, but still a Jew showing his continuity with Judaism. And uh, Stock goes on, True, he was now a witness where before he had been a persecutor, but the God of his fathers was his God still. All right, now the second objective is going to have to do with explaining his mission to the Gentiles. We'll get to that later. For now, let's focus on this first one, this continuity um, Paul's background in his agreement and even fellowship with true believing Judaism, Old Testament faith. You can see this from the very first words of the speech where he addresses them as brothers and fathers. See, the people in the crowd see Paul as an enemy, as an other kind of. Um, and, and they consider that uh, everything that... Um, if you consider everything that Paul's put up with over the past several decades of his life, from people like those in this crowd uh, who have been harassing him everywhere he goes through the Greek Gentile world, um, you might have expected him also to take more of an us versus them mentality here. Uh, there is a track record of, and you remember that these are the Jews from Asia, so these are maybe even some of the same people who have been in those crowds trying to get rid of Paul in other places. Um, in Asia Minor and Greece. But he doesn't view them that way. He calls them fathers and brothers. And notice also how he addresses them in the Hebrew language. Um, now, Paul conducted a lot of his ministry in the Greek language, of course. He wrote all of his New Testament letters in Greek. That's how we have them. Uh, Greek was the lingua franca, as they call it, of the Mediterranean world. Um, and that was what the Gentile Christians abroad uh, could understand. But you see, it's precisely his relationship with the Gentile world that has caused such suspicion 
for this crowd. And, and so here he decides to speak to them in the language of his upbringing, in the language of his homeland, the language of the Old Testament that he shared uh, with the crowd here, but not with the churches abroad and, and not with the Roman soldiers um, who had rescued him. And so the overall effect here is that Paul is saying, in a very fundamental way, I am one of you. He, he wants them to see this interaction, not in terms of Paul versus us, but to see Paul as part of a, a we, something that they share in common. We Israelites, we Hebrews, we Jews. And to a certain extent, it's effective. It says when, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Okay, now, now, verse 22, there's a turning point where they suddenly get very angry again. But before that, it says, up to this word, they listened to him. And so this is a wise choice on Paul's part, and it's effective in, in opening these people's ears to, to listen to what he has to say. Now, remember that quote from Stott. That Paul is a Jew by birth and education and still today. Uh, Paul is presenting himself as still a Jew. That's how he opens. He says, verse 3, I am a Jew. Uh, not I was, but I am now. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, and so on. Remember what he says in Philippians 3. It's very similar. He was a, a, he, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee and as to zeal a persecutor of the church. And that's where Paul goes next. I was so committed to my Jewish heritage, he says, and to the law of God, to everything that all of us love and care about, that when I became convinced that the Christians were wrong, well, I acted on that. I, I persecuted them because that's what I thought my Jewish faith required me to do. In other words, I, I, in other words he's saying, I used to feel about Christianity the same way that you do, for the same reasons. I used to be like someone right there among you. I used to be, you know, the old me would have been in the crowd right now trying to kill the new me. But then he wants them to know, listen to what happened to the old me that changed everything for me. And so he tells them all about the Damascus Road. Um, last time, of course, we heard it from Luke's uh, perspective as a narrator, using words like he and him. Now we get to hear it from Paul's own perspective, using words like I and we. This is what happened to me. The light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground. I heard this voice. Jesus spoke to me. Jesus told me that it was him that I had been persecuting when I persecuted his people. Jesus made me inescapably aware that I had had it completely wrong, that he was indeed alive, that he had indeed risen from the dead. And that is what changed everything for me. That moment when I went from waging what I thought was a holy war against the people of Jesus to calling that same Jesus my Lord. And notice how he does that immediately here. Jesus speaks to him, and how does Paul respond? What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. Some of you may have um, heard of 
people from a Jewish background today who have become Christians, maybe later in life, um, refer to being a completed Jew, completed Jew. And that's how Paul is picturing himself here, really. It's, it's, it's not as though when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he stopped being a Jew and started being something completely different. It's that his true Judaism, that is to say, everything that was true and right and good about his upbringing, everything that was genuine about his faith in the Old Testament scriptures and the promises of God in the law and the prophets, all of that reached its high point when Paul met Jesus. It came to fruition. It came to completion. And so he didn't turn his back on the Old Testament He saw the Old Testament for what it really was all along. What it was for all of the Old Testament people of God. That it was a preparation that had now found its completion in Jesus Christ. I said earlier there were two objectives for Paul's speech here. So the first one is to underline his Jewish background. To tell his conversion story as really a completion story. But the second thing he needed to do is he needed to give a defense a defense for the great differences also between what he had spent his ministry doing for the last few decades and uh, what this crowd thought that faithful Jews should teach and do. Okay? And um, in response to this, what he wants to show this crowd is that What he's been doing in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is not his idea. It's not something he came up with on his own initiative. It's something that Christ told him to do. Christ commanded him to do. This was the command of God that he is carrying out. That's the point in verses 12 to 21. It's it's what ends up so enraging the Jews in verse 22. So, first of all, listen to Ananias in verse 14. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you to be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. See, Paul has not taken it upon himself to preach about Christ to anyone, let alone to the Gentiles, um, as, by the way, he had taken it upon himself to be a persecutor. That was Paul's idea. But he's only preaching Christ because he is carrying out a commission given to him from above, given to him by God himself. And notice how he brings this out in verse 14. Given to him by the God of our fathers. He's telling the crowd, it is your God and my God, our God, the God of our fathers, who has given me this commission to preach the gospel, to preach Christ, and even to preach him to the Gentiles. Again, look at verse uh, 17, uh, how Paul says that he was um, uh, a little later in Jerusalem praying in the temple. Um, And again, notice how Paul brings that out deliberately as well. I was in the temple praying. One of the charges is that Paul had been speaking against this place, right? That he'd been speaking against the temple. But Paul's saying, I do respect the temple. I love the temple. And... um, uh, he, he has reverence for it as a place of worship. And so he's not trying to desecrate the temple as this crowd is charging him with. And so Paul is um, 
going on here to show then how Jesus warns him about what's going to happen to him. Though, As he tries to bring the gospel of Christ to his Jewish countrymen, Jesus warns him as, by the way, he warned his servant Isaiah. You're going to preach to them, but they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen. And Paul says, well, how could that be? I mean, they know what I was like before. They know that I was right there with the people who killed Stephen. They know that I was a persecutor. When they see how much I've changed, won't they have to believe? Won't they have to accept the truth? Because what other explanation could there be for what's happened to me except that that it's all really true? That was always Paul's hope. But of course, Paul served a Savior, Jesus, who had given every evidence to his people that they could possibly have asked for, and they still rejected him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Right? You know that. And now, up until this moment, then, the crowd has been listening patiently to Paul, uh, perhaps even moved a little bit in spite of themselves, perhaps wavering a little bit in their antagonism, perhaps that kind of shadow of a question forming in their minds. Could Paul actually be right? Maybe this really is what happened. Maybe he's telling us the truth. But verse 21 for them represents simply a bridge too far for Paul. When he says that Jesus told him, go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so like Jesus before him, Paul too has his message rejected. Not because there is something wrong with the message, but because the crowd simply is not willing to listen. They're not willing to entertain the idea that the movement of the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, could possibly be their God's idea. Their hearts are rising up in rebellion against the plain truth. And so, really, the fact of the matter is, even if this is what God really commanded Paul to do, still, they want to have nothing to do with it. It is something they cannot tolerate. And so, once again... Like in the previous chapter, Paul has to be rescued by the Romans again, pulled back into the barracks. And it's at this point that we get a little bit of a preview of what I'm calling here Paul's continuing mission. Paul's continuing mission, a little foreshadowing of where the emphasis of Paul's work is going to lie in the next several chapters. More than once so far in Acts, we've seen this pattern, right, where the people of Israel, the Jews, have rejected the gospel. And what has the apostles' response been? Several times already. People of Israel have rejected it, and so what are we going to do? We're going to turn to the Gentiles. And they've done that in place after place. If you're not going to listen, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. And that's the shift that's happening again here. Um, As Paul has described it in verse 21, Jesus sending him to the Gentiles, it's kind of interesting that that's what actually ends up happening again Another cycle is taking place right here in this living moment. The crowd in the temple has rejected Paul and his message. His whole appeal to his Jewish upbringing, his whole expression of reverence for the temple as a place of worship, 
all of it they have tossed aside in their rage over their wounded national and ethnic and spiritual pride. But you see, Paul is not only a Jew. He began by saying, I am a Jew, but he is not only a Jew. In God's providence, remember how God has uniquely prepared this individual, the Apostle Paul, for his mission to the Gentiles in many ways um, that Paul himself did not plan out. Paul is also, remarkably, an official citizen of Rome, the capital city of the empire, that enviable status that has already opened gospel doors for him before now. And now it's about to be uh, the key that's going to bring the message of Christ into the very court of the emperor when Paul finally makes his way all the way to Rome. And it is to that Roman aspect of Paul's identity that the narrative starts to be weighted, uh, starting now. It's not enough here to suppose that uh, Paul brings his Roman citizenship up just because he doesn't want to be flogged. Uh, you remember back in Philippi, he, he could have kept from being beaten and imprisoned if he had brought up his Roman citizenship earlier, but he intentionally waits brings it up later after he's been beaten. And so uh, it should make us think that Paul brings it up now, not for his personal convenience, but because he realizes that this is Christ's provision for the success of his continuing mission. His continuing mission to the many people who are going to hear him and uh, put him on trial in the days ahead, all the way up to the court of Caesar. Christ has given him a continuing mission. We're seeing here how Christ has been providing for that continuing mission since before Paul was even born. So as we close with all these things in our minds, I want to give you uh, just three points of application to take away. First of all, as you see Paul here, like Jesus before him, rejected by the temple crowd. Remember those words from John that I quoted earlier, how he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Remember how John goes on in that same verse, but to as many as did receive him, who believed on his name, what did Jesus do? To them, he gave the right to become children of God. And so as you hear the call of Christ, as you hear the good news of his death and his resurrection for sinners, I want to exhort you, exhort us together to, uh, this morning, do not take your place with this crowd saying, I don't want to listen to this anymore. I don't even care if it's true. I just can't tolerate it and I don't want to hear it. Instead, you want to take your place with the Apostle Paul on your knees before this Lord Jesus saying, what shall I do, Lord? bowing the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and washing away your sins by calling on his name. So that's the first thing. The second thing for us to remember as God's people is that we, like Paul, have a continuing mission. We have a continuing mission. You and I, like Paul, have been sent out by Christ to carry his message to a needy and, yes, often quite hostile world, the same world that Paul faced 
just with a few more centuries under the tires. Um, But as we look at Paul, uh, one of the reasons that the Lord has given us his life story is to remind us not to let the hostility of the world silence us, not to let the difficulty of the task or people's refusal to listen to us deter us from being faithful, from being obedient to carry out that continuing mission that Christ has given to us. Why? Because it is Christ's mission. It is not something that we have taken upon ourselves. It is not our desire for influence, our own initiative, our own ideas, our desire to get people to listen to us. It is the command of Christ. That is why we are to carry the gospel into a world that needs the salvation of Jesus. Spreading the good news is not optional for us because it is not something we have taken upon ourselves. It is a mission from our Savior. And as we seek to carry that mission out then, and this is the last thing, let's not forget, as Hudson Taylor famously said, that God's work done in God's way will never lack for God's supply. And you just think about how so many decades before Paul's arrest by the Romans, before his mission to the Gentiles began, before his conversion even, when he was still a persecutor of the church, from his very childhood and even on before that, Christ was at work to provide Paul with this key to the Roman world. This Roman citizenship status that would be the means that Christ would use one day to open so many gospel doors before him. And so I want you to be encouraged then this morning that wherever the Lord has placed you, he has also prepared the way for you to carry out whatever the work is that he has given you to do. And you may not even know yet what that provision is like or how Christ has been working it out in your past and the past of others to prepare for the future work that he's given you to do. And you may not know how you're going to need that provision. But it is there because your Lord is sovereign and powerful to equip you to carry out the work that he's given you to do. So I want to encourage us then, why not just venture out then in faith this year, this week, and see how Christ is going to provide for his gospel work to go forward through all of us as we love our neighbors and serve them and bring to them the message of life that's only found in Jesus. All right, so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for Paul, for his boldness, for his courage, for his eloquence, for his knowledge of the scriptures, for his love for his people, and even more, his love for the Lord Jesus. Lord, um, we thank you for giving us his life story and for showing us the way you prepared him and provided for him for the mission that you called him to. And we pray that you would prepare us, that you would provide for us for the mission you've called us to. Help us to carry it out in obedience and faith. Because, Lord, we trust that those provisions and those preparations are already in place. Show us, Lord, the fruit of those things as we venture out in obedience in the coming days. To serve you and to carry your message of good news to a lost world that so needs the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.